Welcome to The Exchange with KB with your host, Kirill Bensonoff. Kirill talks to innovators and business leaders who share interesting stories of their success, overcoming challenges, and actionable advice you can learn from. Visit kirillbensonoff.com and sign up for updates. Joining KB today is Zach Prince, founder and CEO of BlockFi, which is offering better wealth management for crypto investors. Zach is a fintech expert and an early Bitcoin pioneer. Now here's your host, KB. Hey, Zach, welcome to the show. Hey, Carol, thanks for having me. Awesome to have you, man. I've got so many things to talk to you about. Maybe we could start out with just a little bit on your background. Sure. So I, um, I've always worked at uh, venture-backed technology companies. I was originally in the advertising technology sector early on in my career. And then more recently and more relevantly for BlockFi, I did a stint at two different companies in the online lending sector. Um, and while I was working in the online lending sector, I kind of became the, the fintech guy amongst my friends group because I was getting exposure to uh, things like robo-advisors, different types of lending platforms where as an investor you could invest in uh, real estate opportunities, consumer loans, small business loans. And I started writing a blog about some of these different uh, fintech companies and, and you know things that individuals could do with these uh, new platforms. And that led me to find crypto. Uh, I originally learned about Bitcoin in 2015, started investing personally and went down the uh, you know, proverbial uh, rabbit hole of, of learning about cryptocurrency throughout 2015 and 2016. And then in early 2017, I started talking about cryptocurrency just all the time. I was still working in, uh, in traditional fintech. And at a certain point, my wife said, you know, Zach, you're just always talking about like Bitcoin and, and Ethereum. And uh, I don't really want to talk about it that much. So you should start going to some meetups. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I started going to some meetups here in New York City. And I watched the composition of the meetups kind of change um, late 2016, early 2017 from being primarily the earliest crypto adopters. So computer scientists, libertarians. Um, individuals that were really early in the space. And then in early 2017, you started to see some venture capitalists, some entrepreneurs, some traditional financial types coming to these meetups, uh, you know, after leaving their jobs on Wall Street. And things like the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance got announced, which was, you know, Microsoft and SAP and other really big companies who were going to invest in blockchain technology. And I just decided that I had to get involved in the space full time. Given that I had been working in lending, you know, debt and credit was the kind of first place that I started to think about. And um, that's what led us to start BlockFi. So BlockFi was your first company uh, in the blockchain space? Correct. Can you think back, like, I, I just want to learn about how you came up with the concept of BlockFi, because, I mean, you guys were pretty early on. Now there's there's a number of companies doing this. You guys are one of the leaders, I believe. And I just want to kind of, if you could think back to, like, was there an aha moment or was it a process or how did it work? Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit of both. So, you know, I had been working in the online lending sector and the general themes in that sector were that uh, companies were emerging to provide different types of debt and credit products in areas of the market where banks had stopped participating. And so, you know, obviously cryptocurrency was an area that uh, banks weren't really participating in at all back then. And, and even now there's, you know, very limited participation from the traditional banking sector. So that was, you know, one trend that I was just very familiar with and, and believed would also be true uh, for the crypto market. And then I had a personal experience. I wanted to kind of test this idea a little bit 
I was working on buying a property in Texas where I'm originally from. This is uh, early 2017. I decided to list Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, as assets on a financial statement that I submitted to a bank that I was trying to get a loan from to uh, buy this property in Texas, just because I was curious what the bank would say. And not only did the bank say, uh, you know, we don't think these assets are actually worth anything. So, you know, they count as a zero in terms of our view of your uh, financials. But they also put me through additional compliance reviews because they were worried that I might be involved in some illicit activity. And, uh, you know, I had raised all these flags on their end because the only people that own Bitcoin were uh, drug dealers and money launderers. Right. And so that was kind of my uh, that was kind of my light bulb moment. Right. I was like, OK, these assets have uh, gone up a lot in price. There's some incredibly um potentially impactful things that could come out of this technology and banks are definitely not going to be, you know, supporting this market anytime soon. And and that's uh, what creates an opportunity for uh, FinTech companies like BlockFi. Awesome. And I mean, that's, that's a great story. Could you describe the BlockFi business model a little bit for the folks that don't know? Sure. So uh, the BlockFi business model is that we're um, a financial services company focused on creating products that help crypto investors better manage their wealth. Right now we have two products. Uh, One product that enables people that own cryptocurrency to earn interest on it. Uh, So it's kind of like a savings account from the traditional banking world. Um, And a second product that enables people to get access to liquidity. So to borrow dollars um, based on how much cryptocurrency they own without selling their cryptocurrency, uh, which is analogous to a securities back loan or a, a liquidity access line from the traditional financial world. So those are the products that we have today. Um, they're growing really quickly. We have you know tens of thousands of uh, clients on the platform. And in the future, we're going to be launching additional products that are relevant to you know this, this customer group that we're serving. The first thing that we're launching this year is the ability to uh, buy and sell crypto assets on our platform. And then next year, we're going to launch a Bitcoin rewards credit card where it'll function like a normal credit card. So like a you know Chase Sapphire Preferred or a City Cash Back, except instead of earning airline miles or normal cash back based on how much you spend on the card, the rewards currency will be Bitcoin. So you'll get, you know, 1.5 cash, 1.5% cash back in what you spend on the card, but it'll be in Bitcoin. That's awesome. That's ex- excellent. Cause then, then I think, you know, what that does for the, the people that earn those rewards, there's actually an upside I mean, a downside as well, potentially, but an upside is, is, uh, is, is, is on the horizon potentially as well. Am I correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a ton of fun um, advertising that product. You know, we can kind of like, I can see the commercial in my head already where you've got, you know, Bob who uses a normal rewards credit card and he only earned 1.5% last year. And then you've got Susan who was earning her rewards in Bitcoin and Bitcoin actually went up in price a lot. So her effective cash back rate was, you know, 10%. Right. Um, uh, so that, that's going to be a lot of fun. The other thing that's exciting about the card is that it, it, we're hopeful that it's going to be a really great way of uh, providing an easy on-ramp for people who maybe don't own Bitcoin yet. We think the people who already own Bitcoin are going to be really excited about it. Uh, you know, I'm one of those people. But we also think that for people who you know, haven't taken the step of you know, spending their own money to buy Bitcoin, uh, onboarding them into the ecosystem through 
credit card rewards, which is something that they're probably already familiar with, is a, is a really attractive value proposition. For sure. And, and you mentioned the first product. Will, will, will that be like a, an exchange in effect? or? Yeah, we're not, we're not building an exchange, so we're not going to be matching orders. Uh, it's actually going to um, look and feel a lot like the Cash App from Square. Uh, so when you buy or sell Bitcoin in the Cash App from Square, you're buying or selling directly from Square. And so on BlockFi, it's going to work the same way. There's only going to be you know one order type. You can either buy or sell at a certain price. The transactions will execute immediately, and we're not matching your order with you know another individual or institution on the platform. Uh, we're just acting as a as a market maker and you know buying and selling uh, from our clients. So we're not we're not really competing with exchanges, but uh, you know we will be providing a similar functionality of you know being able to buy and sell crypto, and we'll have a fiat on and off ramp as well. Very cool. So in effect, somebody using the credit card, they, they earn the rewards. They can go right back to your platform and cash out to fiat if they'd like. Absolutely. And they can also, you know, take the Bitcoin rewards that they're earning on the credit card, move them into the BlockFi interest account, uh, and then earn interest on their Bitcoin that they got as a reward from spending money on their credit card. Cool. Oh, that's awesome, man. Um, in, your, in your bread and butter business, which I believe is the, is the crypto-backed loans, how do you guys make money? Do you take a percentage of of the, you know, of the spread or like, how do you guys make money in that, in that business? Yeah. Like most financial services, everything that we do, um, is a, you know, kind of a spread business model. So, uh, for the crypto backed loans, and just so it's clear, a crypto backed loan is an individual on our platform has, for example, 10 Bitcoin, 10 Bitcoin is worth a hundred thousand dollars roughly at this point in time, they could borrow up to 50,000 USD from BlockFi secured by their 100,000 of Bitcoin. And then we would charge them interest on the 50,000 USD that they've borrowed. The way that BlockFi makes money is there's a spread between the rate that we're charging our client who's borrowing from us and then financing that we secure in the institutional market. So, you know, for example, if we're lending to our client at 10%, we might be financing that at 9% or 8%. Uh, on the back end with an institutional partner. Similarly, in our interest account, uh, someone is depositing Bitcoin and earning a 6% annual rate on that. Uh, we might be lending Bitcoin to an institutional borrower at an 8% rate. With trading, buying and selling, there'll be you know 25 basis point or 50 basis point spread that we'll make. And then on the credit card, credit card economics are actually pretty confusing, but at the end of the day, it's a spread business also. Mm -hmm. um, so it's all about scale. You know, we're picking up uh, pennies and nickels on, on lots of transactions at, at high volume. Right, right. No, that's, that's, that's great. I mean, it looks like you guys are building a platform uh, to do a bunch of different stuff. That's really excellent. Because well, you, you guys have a lot of visibility into what's going on. I wanted to ask you, what has changed? I mean, you went through like the, the hype of Bitcoin and crypto, right, 2017, and then obviously the, the crypto winter, quote unquote, and now we're in, uh, I don't know, spring or whatever time it is. I have lost track. But, you know, now, now kind of the, the price of Bitcoin has rebounded and we see that the ecosystem is continuing to evolve. I mean, as far as like from the BlockFi point of view, do you guys see a shift? Like, is there more institutions coming in? Is there more consumers? Is it, you know, getting different in some way? Can you give your opinion on that? Uh, sure. So I think overall, the um, the space has matured uh, quite a bit. It's matured in terms of adoption, especially at the institutional level. Um, and uh, adoption in that context could mean, you know, traditional companies like Square and Robinhood or the CME uh, creating products uh, for Bitcoin. Um, 
or or it can be matured in the sense that uh, you know in 2017 there are a lot of you know kind of fly by night uh, startups that conducted an ICO and you know fell into 20 million dollars or 50 million dollars and had no idea what they were doing and, and you know some of them were fraudulent and, and a lot of that has gone away so the space has matured materially in that period of time another thing that's happened has just been a general continuing development around education and understanding so in 2017 like q3 q4 when bitcoin was uh you know going parabolic towards 20,000, that was the first time that a lot of people had heard about bitcoin or cryptocurrency and then in 2018 a lot of interest kind of faded because the price was doing poorly but some of those individuals that got brought into the market during that time period stuck around the other thing that happened is companies like BlockFi and others have just continued to work and continued to build their products, continue to speak with investors, raise capital, bring things to the market that make the accessibility or utility value um, of Bitcoin much greater. I'm feeling you know, very, very bullish on both the Bitcoin price and the overall ecosystem uh, you know, over the next six, 12, 24 months. Yeah. And, and you guys recently raised some money. So I wanted to ask a little bit about that. Um, I know some folks that got into the blockchain business, some early on, some a little bit later, and they had potentially good ideas, but they weren't really, uh, they weren't really tested. They were just thoughts. And some, some of them had like an MVP and they're able to go out uh, usually on the West coast or elsewhere in the world and raise a little bit of capital, a million, $3 million and go play with their, their idea. And some of them, you know, did well and others didn't, but you know, they, they've had a lot of challenges kind of talking to VCs, angels and others that most of them don't really play in the crypto world or even wanted to stay away from it at some points. Is that something you guys faced? I mean, you raised a significant amount of money. Did you find, did you have challenges finding VCs to talk to or did you, or were they really open and, and, and how did you guys, how were you able to raise your funds? Sure. I mean, I'd, I'd say it was, uh, you know, it's been a bit of a, of a mixed experience. Fortunately, I, I come from a you know venture-backed company background, so I built a pretty solid network of VCs throughout the years. But in 2017, when we raised our seed round of funding, we were in this weird, almost kind of no man's land where uh, you know crypto companies didn't like us because we weren't doing an ICO because we thought that was a bad idea and didn't make any sense from a user's perspective. And traditional VCs didn't really understand the crypto space yet and weren't really you know, comfortable investing in it, or, or just a few of them were, not that many of them were. And over the last year and a half, uh, leading up to our you know, Series A round of funding, and we raised more capital in between, not only did we you know, launch products into the market, show material success in terms of uh, key KPIs like user growth and uh, revenue, but also a lot of the crypto VCs have started getting really interested in just investing in equity the same way that traditional VCs do. And a lot of traditional VCs have started to understand the crypto ecosystem better, understand what the capabilities are, uh, and get interested um, in investing in the space. So the lead investor in our Series A round is actually a, a venture firm called Valar Ventures, who exclusively invests in fintech companies, and we were actually the first investment that they've made that directly touches the cryptocurrency sector. That's uh, Peter Thiel's company, right? Yeah, it's, they're part of the uh, you know kind of Peter Thiel uh, umbrella uh, network of, of venture firms. 
That's that's very cool. I mean, what do you think is kind of the biggest roadblock or or the biggest thing holding back crypto adoption right now? It, it just needs to become more accessible. It needs to become uh, more usable, and people need to continue to understand, you know, why they should own any of it. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, you know, jumping into the deep end of the crypto pool can be really scary. For people that that don't own Bitcoin today, you know, you try to read some stuff, and you might, you know, you might read that um, you have to get this hardware device and put your Bitcoin on it, and you know, keep it in a lockbox in your basement, or um, you might read that uh, that the reason you should own Bitcoin is because the dollar is going to collapse. And I feel like there's been a little bit uh, too much of this um, fear-based marketing from the the crypto community, and I think that giving people a really easy way to access cryptocurrency that is familiar to them in terms of traditional products uh, is something that, you know, the industry needs to continue to be focused on. And then talking about the, the good things that cryptocurrency uh, could do for, you know, society, specifically around the accessibility of financial services uh, and the velocity of money. Uh, which is a, a core component of, of the size of our global economy, is a direction that we need to move in. Um, and I'll give you an example of that, you know, making things familiar to traditional people. We talked about the credit card already. But when we launched the BlockFi interest account, which is, you know, where people earn interest on their Bitcoin holdings, um, we had a lot of people come to us and say, I heard you're paying 6% on Bitcoin. I don't own any Bitcoin. I don't really understand it, but I understand earning 6% interest. So I want to buy some Bitcoin. Can I do that through you? Uh, and at the time, we, we weren't actually able to let people buy Bitcoin through us. But that type of thing, you know, making it look and feel like something that, that people are used to, putting it in terms that they can understand uh, and talking about what's going on in this sector in a positive light, I think would be uh, you know, things that we need to see happen uh, for the space to continue to grow as quickly as it has in the past. How do you view crypto personally? I mean, is it something? Do you think of let's let's take Bitcoin for example? And do you think of it as a as a payment mechanism? Uh, it really isn't today, but do you think it's going to be one, or do you view it as like a digital gold, an asset class you can invest into, and you know, everyone should have, as some folks out there say, uh, you know, five, ten percent, or whatever of their portfolio in Bitcoin? I mean, what what do you think about Bitcoin specifically, and then maybe other crypto assets um, as far as what their use cases might be? The way I describe Bitcoin is it's two things. It's digital gold with a global payment network built into it as well. And when I talk about whether or not people should invest in it, I say, well, the, you know, the, the profile of Bitcoin is very similar to venture investing. Um, and in venture investing, you have you know, the opportunity for a 10x or a 100x. But you, you also have the opportunity that the investment could go to zero or, or close to it. And I think that Bitcoin is still, you know, still new and volatile. So people should view it with that type of lens in terms of, you know, what's my distribution of outcomes? What's my risk return profile here? And then, you know, in terms of the other stuff, I think Ethereum uh, has a shot at becoming, you know, this type of platform that's powering new uh, web-based applications. Um, I think it still has a long way to go. I think the exciting, the most exciting thing that's happening with Ethereum right now is uh, the, that stable coins are all launching on Ethereum. And everything else, uh, honestly, I don't pay that much attention to. 
Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, uh, I'm kind of over it for a lot of the other stuff to tell you the truth. I'm, I'm, I'm focused on Bitcoin and a little bit of ether. You know, my personal portfolio is like 95% Bitcoin, 5% Ethereum, and that's it. In terms yeah. of my in terms of my crypto investments, <laughs> I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that right now. Um, what, what about other stable coins? I mean, I I saw on uh, BlockFi's website that you guys work with, I believe, only uh, one stable coin, GUSD. What what are your thoughts on other stable coins? I think it's a phenomenal concept. I have you know maybe somewhat of a contrarian view in the crypto world. I think that uh, that stable coins on you know blockchains are going to be a larger uh, market cap asset than Bitcoin. Coin sometime in the next three to five years, I think it's I think it's massive, and I think that you know to answer your question about GUSD, like um, we launched GUSD first because we were custodying our assets with Gemini, so uh, it was kind of the easiest place to start from a technical implementation perspective. But we'll be adding other stable coins very soon, like USDC, uh, PAX, um, and, and others. Gotcha. What are your thoughts on other? I mean, do you are you taking any liking to other sort of platform uh, type of uh, uh, blockchains out there? I, I mean, maybe Ethereum competitors. Uh, do you no. see any? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. But but I'm not uh, I'm not the best person to ask. Like you know, I, I haven't done the work on it. I haven't done the research. It's not an area that I'm focused on right now. Uh, I've heard things about um, Tezos. I've heard things about EOS. And then there's always you know, there's always a new, better, fanc- fancier, faster one that's uh, that's coming out that, you know, the VCs are getting in on super early. And then whenever it ICOs, it gets dumped on retail. But it's just not something that I pay sure. attention to, frankly. Understood. Understood. What are your thoughts on, you know, I'm, I spent some of my time thinking about like tokenization of tra- traditional assets, real estate, you know, whatever other asset classes that exist already. What, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's something that's going to happen? Are we going to one day be in a fully tokenized, you know, equities, uh, public equities world or, or a tokenized real estate? Or is that very far away or never? In terms of what's out there today, I struggle to understand why it's better than, than what we already have for um, users that can access uh, the U.S. market and users that can access, you know, platforms like interactive brokers, for example, where I do think there are some really interesting opportunities is in using the tokenization process to make investments accessible to people who don't have access to them today, uh, which is, you know, largely a emerging and frontier market exercise. I think that things like what Abra is doing, where they're, you know, tokenizing the uh, S&P 500 and making it available in really small investment sizes to, to people around the world. I think that's really interesting in terms of real estate. Uh, you know, I think like somebody in the U S being able to buy a, a fractional share of an apartment building or a commercial office or a house um, that already exists. We have REITs, we have, uh, you know, crowdfunding platforms. And I think that what could be interesting for a U.S. user is like, you know, maybe I want to buy a tiny slice of a commercial building in Buenos Aires or Johannesburg and, and vice versa, uh, giving, you know, a retail individual from a non-U.S. market access to U.S. market investments, I think is also really interesting. Totally. But I don't, you know, I don't necessarily see the, the need from a U.S. user perspective to have more tokenization. Um, sure. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, a lot, I think a lot of people share that same perspective is that we're, we already have a lot of stuff and you can pretty much, uh, you can pretty much do all these things with the existing products. What, what are your thoughts on as far as like the globalization and how crypto is driving the globalization? I mean, let's take your, you know, your own company, BlockFi. I mean, do you guys see the majority of your users from the U.S. or is it or is it international or is it like what's what's the split, you know? Yeah, I think that's one of the most exciting things about working in the crypto space. The fact that if you're using cryptocurrency to build your products, you can launch something at basically a global scale on day one is a game changer. A traditional financial services company could not do that because in order to transact with people in different markets, you need to have a local banking partner, a local payment processing partner. And in order to get those partnerships, you have to you know, get the necessary licenses from that local jurisdiction, which can be really, really hard. And, and oftentimes it's not worth the return on investment and return on time uh, for companies that are domiciled in uh, you know, major markets like the US, Europe, or certain parts of Southeast Asia. So I think the fact that, you know, at BlockFi, we already have clients from over 60 countries. We're focused primarily on the U.S. market. 90% of our user base is from the U.S., but we have users from other countries, and we were able to do that uh, with, with pretty minimal effort. That's a game changer. Uh, and we have you know, international expansion as a, as a focus on our roadmap coming up a lot sooner than it would be if uh, if we weren't using assets on you know blockchains as uh, the primary currency within our applications. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier to launch, doesn't it? But what, and, from what, a, and from a personal perspective, sorry, one more one more point on that. Sure. From, from an from a personal perspective, the U.S. dollar is so dominant um, in the global economy, and governments and corporations have had access to U.S. dollars and U.S. dollar-denominated capital markets for a really long time. Governments and companies could borrow dollars or save in dollars uh, for, for a long time now. Retail individuals have not had access to that. So uh, it's really, really powerful, this concept of you know someone in Argentina being able to borrow in dollars or save in dollars and, and get access to the same rates that U.S. individuals do. And, and that truly is something that is new, unique, and, and very, very powerful. Transacting on blockchain uh, networks is what makes it possible. It's, it's funny you should bring up Argentina because I just recently read that they passed a law that uh, basically... Capital uh, controls. Right, right. Prohibits people from buying, I think, more than $10,000 worth of USD with the local currency. So I, what you're saying is, in fact, if we have the blockchain, individuals have the ability to bypass those banks altogether. Am I right? Individuals, companies. Yeah, absolutely. Right. All right. Yeah. No, that, that that's, that's really exciting. And I, I mean, and so... How would that work practically? Just I, I just kind of walk through it. So somebody in Argentina, they have local currencies and pesos uh, in Argentina. I, I yeah. can't remember. Argentinian peso. Yeah. 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 So uh, so they have local currency and, and um, uh, let's say they wanted to 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 denominate, you know, to exchange it, to buy dollars basically with the local currency and then put it into a savings account. Um, they would what would be the process, you know, in, 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 in the best case scenario? How would it work with the blockchain? Yeah, so I think what you're going to see and, and what we're already seeing is that uh, local markets will have um, exchanges that provide fiat on and off ramps into Bitcoin uh, or, you know, Ethereum. Um, and so, you know, the local exchange in Argentina 
that individual with pesos could go to their local Bitcoin exchange, um, send their pesos to that exchange, and then get their hands on Bitcoin or get their hands on Ether. Once they have that, they could come somewhere like BlockFi, swap the Bitcoin or Ether for dollars, and now they have a dollar you know, denominated savings account. Gotcha. So it's, a two step, it's a two-step process, and it's funny because it's the opposite of the problem you hear about in the Bitcoin world, which is, oh, you know, we need more on-ramp. We need more fiat on and off-ramps into Bitcoin. Uh, but I think uh, at some point in time in the future, you'll see Bitcoin being used as an on and off-ramp to the dollar uh, from people in countries where they don't have easy access to the dollar or uh, they have capital controls, like like what you're seeing in Argentina now. You, you may very well be right. What What are your thoughts on like the current state of flux and as far as regulation and as as far as it kind of relates to Libra? So after Facebook, you know, announced Libra, there was all of this uh, regulatory conversations within the the Congress, and um, you know, the, the, for those that don't, don't they're not really up up for uh, on the latest news. I guess the uh, the Libra Foundation or the uh, uh, is based in switzerland and obviously facebook is like the main sponsor there's other partners but um they're mostly based in the u.s i think there's some international ones but i think there's the uh some of the folks uh, involved in regulating financial services are kind of up in arms about facebook i mean it's really not facebook but they're saying that facebook is creating an alt- alternate currency they're bu- going to bypass the sovereign currency the u.s dollar and create their own currency I mean, are you worried about this or is this a normal progress for uh you know for crypto well, well first off that's definitely what facebook is trying to do second i think that it's definitively a good thing for the cryptocurrency sector even you know whether or not Facebook ever actually launches Libra, it's a very good thing for the sector because it brought an increasing amount of attention uh, to Bitcoin in the cryptocurrency sector, and it's uh, also gotten attention from you know a lot of companies who, for example, are partners in the Libra Association. In terms of whether or not I can, I'm concerned about it, I don't think it's going to. I don't think it's going to happen in the U.S. Uh, I think that the U.S. regulators are not going to allow a company that's as powerful as Facebook and a company that has, you know, the recent kind of marks on its track record in terms of data privacy and other things like Facebook uh, to do it. I, I just don't think they're going to allow it. That's my personal opinion. We'll see what happens. But it's a very, it's a very powerful, uh, it's a very powerful idea. Uh, and just the fact that you know we're we're having the conversation about a company uh, creating uh, you know basically its own currency and, and governments like uh, you know the strongest government in the world the U.S. government are scared by it is uh, is really interesting. It's an interesting time to be alive. Yeah. It's an interesting story to watch. For sure. Do you think we're kind of moving towards a sovereign cryptocurrency? I think China has been talking about releasing one or should be close to releasing one, according to what I read well, for sure. other countries. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if we'll be able to call it a, a cryptocurrency. Um, I think there's some implications in the word uh, crypto that you know probably won't be there when it's a sovereign currency. But yes, it will absolutely happen. There's no reason why it wouldn't. I mean, it's, uh, it's a no-brainer. 
What do you think as far as regulation? I just want to go back to that for a second. I noticed on your website earlier that, for example, the stablecoin deposits are only for non-U.S. residents. And I presume that has something to do with, with the regulation. But, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that. But what do, you, do, you, do you think there are, I mean, high-level things that U.S. can do better to kind of spur innovation in the sector a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, it, it really comes down to clarity. Uh you know, regulators are always a little bit, um, a little bit behind technological innovation. Uh, right now, stablecoins are still, still in the process of being understood uh, by regulators here in the U.S. But I think we're making a lot of progress on that. We've actually started to make uh, GUSD deposits available to some U.S. residents as part of a beta period uh, because our, our own internal, you know, regulatory comfort with it um, has increased pretty dramatically over the last uh, month or so. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, there's a mismatch, right? Like BlockFi, we have some licenses at the federal level. We have some licenses at the state level. We have to spend, you know, we've got this whole part of our business, the compliance and regulatory side uh, that we have to, um, you know, manage uh, and, and spend a lot of time and resources on that uh, different types of companies don't. So, you know, fintech startups are, are unique in that regard. So it's, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Overall, I think the U.S. has done a, a great job, though. They haven't, you know, they haven't stopped or outlawed cryptocurrency. Uh, it's been on a kind of steady progression uh, towards clarity. So, so you know, uh, overall, I'd say they've done as good as they can. They have a tough job. As far as like the regulatory, I mean, I've kind of always felt that in U.S. we're a little bit overregulated in the financial services space. I, I do understand that U.S. has the biggest capital market and stability is extremely important. But I mean, it's, for a startup like like yourselves, I mean, what percentage of the budget? I mean, is it a large percentage that you have to spend, and what percentage of your time? I mean, is this a, a very burdensome, cumbersome task to take on as a startup, or is it manageable? No, I mean, it's definitely manageable. You just have to you know budget and plan accordingly. We had a compliance advisor working with us from you know the very early days of the company. He's now our full time chief compliance officer. Uh, you know, before we made a, a single loan, there were licenses that we needed to receive. Uh, fortunately, we had a background in, you know, this type of lending. So we kind of, we came in wide, eyes wide open in terms of knowing what we needed to do. But I don't know, probably somewhere between uh, 10 to 20% of our, of our CapEx goes towards, you know, various legal and, and licensing and, and staffing for, uh, regulatory compliance. Yeah, that's definitely sizable. Definitely sizable. Uh, what, so what's next for BlockFi? I mean, you, you mentioned you're working on some new products. I mean, what's what's next for you guys this year or, or next? So I mentioned we're rolling out uh, two new products over the next 18 months, the ability to buy and sell, and then the Bitcoin rewards credit card. We're also going to you know start focusing a little bit on uh, markets outside the U.S. and traveling a bit more. So other than that, just growing the team, keep Keeping everybody happy and motivated. <laughs> nice, Zach. You, you've done you've done great things. You showed me the beautiful office before we started the interview. I wish you guys the best of luck, everyone out there. Check out block, blockfi.com and thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Carol.